Hello traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. Today, Jim and I are going to discuss our outlook for 2021 for both crude and products. Jim, kick us off. So as Corey's introduction mentions, today we're talking about trends that we see going forward into 2021, irrespective of who's in the White House. What gives us the certainty? Well, two reasons. These trends are not COVID-induced, nor are they Trump administration-induced. In fact, they existed well before either took front stage. Also, these trends are much bigger than the United States or the U.S. oil system. They're happening worldwide. Our focus, however, will remain in the Americas. There are many trends circling the oil industry at present. I want to talk about three today. Bankruptcies, M&A, and leverage. So starting with bankruptcy. There are six different forms of bankruptcy in the U.S. They have quirky numbering system, and they're called chapters. And the, the bankruptcy chapters are 7, 9, 11, 12, 13, and 15. Only two are in our focus, though. Chapter 7 is the turn the lights out, sell our assets, liquidation kind of bankruptcy. Chapter 11 is the reorganization kind of bankruptcy. Usually it's the debt that gets reorganized so the company can resume operations. Haynes & Boone is the most recognized law firm to put their listing of bankruptcies out there for public consumption. HainesBoone.com they do a listing for EMP companies, oil field service companies, and midstream in the US and Canada, as well as a few other reports. After two or three seconds, it will be obvious they are huge players in the space. I don't have any affiliation with them, just a fan of their work. It's the second biggest of the bankruptcies in 2020 that I want to talk about California Resources Corp. CRC was spun off from Occidental Petroleum in June of 2014 with an outsized amount of debt as per President and CEO Todd Stevens. Remember all that peak oil nonsense? They enjoyed two full months of oil production bliss before the bottom fell out of the prices. Oil prices went from the low to mid-90s in Q2 of 2014 when they went public to the low 50s at the end of December. Apparently, they missed the exploding shale revolution. Or, worse yet, they knew exactly what they were doing. Production in the U.S. was only 8.7 million barrels a day. However, that's up from 5.6 million barrels a day just three years earlier, a 55% increase in an environment that had been steadily decreasing. Now the debt became oppressive. A very competent management group toughed it out until COVID and the collapse of the fuel demand in California sunk them. Now, operating in California is not easy for oil and gas companies as the state government is openly hostile to hydrocarbons. Which is strangely ironic given the state's love affair with their cars and the fact that Oil built Los Angeles. What? Yeah. 
1892, when Edward Doheny sharpened a eucalyptus tree trunk and drilled a 225-foot well in Signal Hill, just north of Long Beach, the 49ers, from about 50 years earlier, turned into oil men, and they went nuts. There were literally oil derricks on Venice Beach. Texans didn't even go that crazy. There has never been an oil derrick on the beaches of South Padre Island. But I digress. CRC management knew the end was coming and negotiated with debt holders to transform their $5 billion of long-term debt into equity. Amongst other things that happens with this approach, this is called a prepackaged bankruptcy. The reason to do this is to get back to work quickly. And so they did. CRC was in bankruptcy for about three months. Typically, the Chapter 11 process is a year to two-year process. The benefit, they came out the other side in a much better position to face the current market challenges. As the end was coming, CRC had to idle some, if not all, of their 17,000 wells. After emerging from bankruptcy, they obtained some short-term financing and got these wells back up and producing again. There will continue to be some issues with EMP companies on future funding, but if they have the cash flow to do so, they'll fund their operations from current cash flow. Ends up being an ironic twist of circumstance for Russia and Saudi Arabia. The oil price war designed to punish American EMP companies is making companies like CRC come out even stronger than when it started. I bet you've been to the historical marker at the Alamitos well, well in Signal Hill. I have the t-shirt on right now. Nice, nice. So the last couple of years have been interesting in the M&A space. What do you have for us on that? In 2018, the market started to see some consolidation. This grew from the grow-at-any-price mentality and the related debt-fueled growth strategies you've heard me talk about. 2019 saw an acceleration of this trend with around $156 billion in mergers. Oxy's purchase of Anadarko being more than a third of that with their $57 billion purchase. Some other big deals changed the landscape as well, like Hillcorp's purchase of BP's Alaska assets, Callan buying Carrizo, WPX buying privately held Felix Energy, and Parsley Energy buying Jagged Peak Energy. This trend is also happening in oilfield services and midstream sector. I'll leave that for another day other than to suggest GE's $3 billion partial divestment of Baker Hughes with the balance to be spun out in the next couple of years. The highlight in the midstream space was the $14 billion deal between MPLX, Marathon Partners Logistics, buying out Endeavor Logistics. On the refining side, Saudi, Saudi Aramco's $63.8 billion purchase of 70% of SABIC is a pretty clear sign of downstream integration and a desire to diversify into pet chems. For 2020, the dollars are smaller, but the number of deals is higher and the trend accelerates. The biggest deals being the $24 billion Synovus Husky matchup, Chevron's purchase of Noble Energy, and Conoco buying Concho. On the midstream side, 
This trend is evident with TC Energy buying TC Pipelines, signaling an end to their desire to have an MLP. And that's going to be a trend to watch in, in the future. A couple of deals caught my attention as they are acquisitions of companies that acquired a company in 2019. Devon's purchase of WPX Energy for $2.56 billion after WPX bought Felix Energy for $2.5 billion in 2019. Finally, Pioneer Natural Resources purchase of Parsley Energy a year after Parsley Energy bought Jagged Peak Energy. So time doesn't let me get into the details of these transactions, but there are a couple of themes that ring out loud. First, the obvious question, is bigger better? There's only so much cost that can be cut. No one is running fat these days, which means it's down to G&A. Access to debt doesn't get any easier and likely the debt load of the combined company is heavier than the percentage that the acquiring company had prior to the purchase. That's a reason they even had the ability to do that. With that said, many of the transactions these days are all stock purchases. As we have seen with Oxy's purchase of Anadarko, anything and everything that is viewed as non-core assets will get a sale tag put on it. If they need to clear it quick, it will get an orange 30% off sales tag. As far as production goes, this trend will limit flow. With cash being tight, only the lowest cost, highest producing wells are going to get the precious CapEx and maintenance budget. One trend that I'm seeing that gives me bittersweet jitters, I saw retrospectively from the 90s. It was literally the trend that pulled me into energy the loss of experienced personnel. Certainly this crowd received a higher wage than the young bloods entering the market. But I remind the C-suite who listened to this podcast, you get what you pay for. And have you tried to recruit a young person into oil these days? Whew. What are you talking about? Here's the sweet part of the bittersweet. When oil prices tanked in the late 90s, the oil patch was changing. Once the shock of $10 oil wore off, the picture started to turn. Liquidity was massively increasing, and more and more companies wanted to ride the wave. To do that, they needed some fresh blood. Trading wasn't like it was just five years previous. Different companies chose different strategies, to be sure. The company I joined was clearly looking for traders who could create a name for the company. Nerves of Steel? was rewarded more than flat-out IQ. Enter me, young, hungry, and more nerve than the MIT brains I was competing against. Now the bitter part. This change to gunslingers versus PhDs meant the old guard was being cut. Said a different way, institutional knowledge was being pushed out the door. Now everyone relied on third-party analysts and guile. So naturally, when the 2001 recession hit, IQ edged guile. The huge turning point, and the point of this diatribe, happened in September of 2004. Hurricane Ivan. There's no book on how to trade these things. The number of variables and their interaction is so dependent 
upon the current situation that their slide rulers for the PhD crowd must have been smoking. Some of the gunslingers made out like bandits. Others made out like failed bandits. For whatever it's worth, this was the origin of my belong, stupid, and the world will reward you trading style. Point being, lack of experience on both sides turned a volatile situation into a fission reaction that exploded prices to unthinkable heights. The fission reaction continued for three years. There are a lot of similarities in this current market, but instead of PhDs, this market is calling them data scientists. And playing the part of gunslingers? Well, let's just say I agree with Goldman Sachs' assessment on oil prices in the next few years. They saw what I saw. All right, Wyatt. Who's the huckleberry on leverage? The last trend I want to talk about is also the most troubling. Troubling because the United States is a competitor and the only competitor with significant constraints lashed around it. Of course, I'm talking about oil production and more specifically shale production. Cracking rock revolutionized the oil business and the U.S. economy. The phrase energy independence entered our lexicon. Well, not actually independent, but our Canadian brothers and sisters got our back. The U.S. is no longer at the mercy of foreign players to support its economic goals. And even more so, now it competes with the very sellers who held that power. This is creating some interesting quirks. The U.S. government can't constrain oil exports like Saudi Arabia and Russia can because it's private companies, not sovereign ownership of the oil wells. This creates a hell of a dilemma for the other two giant oil producers in the form of a free rider problem. Free rider, in this case, defined by any cuts to production that Saudi Arabia and or Russia would make mean U.S. shale producers can gain market share. And as we saw during the price wars, overproduction issues are borne by everyone. And so they were. Saudi Arabia flooded the U.S. producers' export markets with oil, as well as flood the U.S. Gulf Coast storage and floating storage with oil. It worked. The cheap oil pushed many of the debt-laden producers into bankruptcy, and sadly there will be more. However, as we heard with CRC and Denbury Resources and Whiting Petroleum, these companies are coming out of this prepackaged bankruptcy in a more formidable position to compete globally. And sure, the smaller guys are going to be consumed, like we heard a couple of minutes ago, or dissolved in the well sold off. This in turn is creating a very unique dynamic in the oil patch. Saudi Arabia has mostly been able to control OPEC with the threat of spare production capacity and a willingness to turn on the spigots and cause massive pain to everyone. What is unique about the current situation is the compliance to production quotas outside of OPEC and OPEC+. So the relationship of equals now means the U.S. could do some significant damage to the Saudi Arabia government revenue base. But hold up a minute. There's a whole lot more at play with Saudi than just oil. In 2017, the U.S. signed a deal to modernize the Saudi armed forces 
with a $110 billion deal. The commitments have stretched now to $126 billion. The State Department says we are $27 billion in delivering Patriot air defense, high-altitude area defense, some M1 Abrams tanks, a whole boatload of Humvees, 50 F-15SAs, that's a custom build for Saudi Arabia, and 70 kits to retrofit their existing F-15s, C-130J Super Hercules, this transport plane is a beast. KC-130J, this, this beast is built to stay in the sky for days at a time. Apache, Blackhawk, Chinook helicopters, combat ships, patrol boats, and a whole host of control systems, Javelin and Tow-2B anti-tank missiles, and possibly the coolest gizmo, the Phalanx close-in weapon system. This is a modern version of the anti-aircraft and torpedo guns. It can fire 4,500 20-millimeter rounds in a minute. The relationship with Saudi Arabia goes much deeper than we have time for today. But let me say, thank goodness. Want to guess who was the competitor for this $110 billion arms deal? Yeah, you bet you're borscht. It's the Russian Federation. It's a bit beyond the scope of our view, but Cracking Rock in Texas and Appalachia also provided the U.S. with a massive amount of natty, that's natural gas, to be cooled for LNG and shipped all over the world. This, in turn, served as a viable backstop for our allies instead of being forced to submit to Russian whims. Going to the third dimension, this, amongst other events not related to energy, changed the relationship between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Again, let me say thank goodness. Russia has made some significant inroads into foreign policy in both Syria and Venezuela. Their influence in the Middle East would only make things more complicated. The point of all this? U.S. shale changed the world. I touched on a few foreign policy points. There are many domestic policy points that are equally as important. Whoever the next president is will not want to relinquish this newfound power. Or the president after that. Or the president after that. So, Corey, with that little bit of sunshine, why don't you tell us about the clean product market? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to approach this, approach my section differently and, and talk about each of the marquee products, so gasoline, diesel, and jet, uh, separately. But first, let me frame this discussion just a bit. Otherwise, I'll go on rattling on for days about refined products in every other part of the world. When it comes to oil demand, the United States was responsible for about 21% of demand annually. And prior to COVID, looking at 2018 numbers, world demand was just under 100 million barrels per day. So, you know, even if you're bad at math, you probably get that U.S. oil demand that year was just under 21 million barrels per day. And, um, and that's why most of my talk today will just be around the U.S., not because I don't love our Canadian and Latin American and other brethren. To be fair, for our focus on the Western Hemisphere, we do have two other locales making the world's top 10, but those don't show up until number seven and number nine, Brazil and Canada, respectively. So let's start with gasoline. Jody keeps gasoline demand figures for 117 countries. I'm not saying that Jody's numbers are 100% accurate, but directionally it gives us a sense of how gasoline consumption looks in the world. 
So when I say that the U.S. accounts for 21% of the world's oil demand, an IEA figure, by the way, Jody shows that the U.S. accounts for over 41% of the world's gasoline demand. No one else comes close. And in fact, China, with the next largest gasoline demand of any one country, comes in at only 13.3% of gasoline demand. Both locales have essentially balanced refinery gasoline production versus consumption, but of course there's always opportunistic trading opportunities in the case of the U.S., uh, Jones Act, and, and other considerations. Okay, so for this year the next, where are we on U.S. gasoline? Well, first of all, at the height of the pandemic here in the U.S., the four-week moving average, average finished gasoline product supplied fell to 5.3 and some change million barrels per day. And using the more simplified monthly numbers, the April low of 5.85 million barrels per day was 65.3% of 2020's monthly high. Ladies and gentlemen, we've not had a monthly print that low since January of 1974. Now we've had some recovery, but from a weekly standpoint, still about 1 million barrels per day shy of where we were last year. And if we think about the balance of 2020 and into 2021, Forecasting is somewhat a fool's game, but what a fool I am. I think that we return to normal gasoline demand in the U.S. next year. I know there's a, th a second, third, eighth wave of COVID here and coming, but I see a semblance of balancing going on that gets us there. What I mean is this, the economy is slowed. There will be some recovery. Maybe there's more work from home policies or policies where office workers spend minimal time in the office. One that weighs on commutes and by extension, transportation fuels demand. We've also seen some relocation away from urban areas, and that maybe doesn't make up the demand, but with regular grocery, et cetera, trips, maybe they be from the households themselves or delivery services, these actions prop up demand. We've also seen, unsurprisingly, divorce rates in the U.S. increase at the tune of 34% compared to 2019. We've seen this in China as well, and maybe it's more significant there as you go from a one-car household to two households, perhaps both having cars, uh, whereby in the U.S. are pretty saturated with the car park, but maybe split households living independently take additional trips. But maybe a more significant variable is people opting to take personal transportation versus public transportation, and the likelihood of this phenomena persisting for the foreseeable future. Anecdotally, let's pretend that since I joined Refinitive earlier this year and moved to the Houston area, that I had to go into the office versus avoiding combing my hair for days and staring out the window at my neighbors while talking to clients and conducting research. Our office is downtown. I live nowhere close. The plan was to take a bus from a stop close to me or carpool some of my neighbors. But do you think I'd do that now? Nope. Personal car. All day, every day. And maybe the strongest 2021 gasoline demand lifting variable yet I think by the next summer driving seasons that we see one stronger than we've seen in a while. I believe that by summer, people will be going out of their minds and welcome the opportunity to flee their domiciles. But instead of jumping on jets and flying to Disney World, that will be Clark Griswolding and across the great nation. But that certainly won't help out the jet market. <laughs> Griswolding across the nation. I love that. Why don't you tell us about the jet market? <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, let me tell you what, let me just talk about middle distance altogether. And with that, a shameless plug. If you're a client, you're not making use of the analysis tab under the energy app on Icon. You're really missing out. I mean, soon I'll have a U.S. distance page up there and we'll be dropping in some weekly commentary. Anywho, 
diesel is the fuel of economies. And as such, when we saw the virus hit in full force in the US, diesel demand dropped off, but not as much as gasoline. I believe from a four week moving average product supplied standpoint, diesel at one point got to about 74% of its 2020 high. Regardless, it's recovered to its 2019 levels, which sit a little higher than the five-year average. When it comes to diesel exports, however, those have been pretty strong the last few weeks, especially to Latin America. But from a product supplied plus exports perspective, we are still sitting below where we were in 2019. The problem here is the high inventories. We brought diesel inventory down considerably the last few weeks, but still sits above the five-year average. What will support increased and continued diesel demand in the near term and into next year are three things. First, the ISM manufacturing PMI has continued to remain positive over the last few readings. The October 1 reading wasn't as strong as the previous month, but remains expansionary. Second, we're seeing an uptick in the rig count. Oil field use is not insignificant. It's generally over 100,000 barrels a day. The EIA data is two years delayed, but to get an idea of what this looks like, during the 2016 low after the oil price crash, we saw oil company diesel demand about half of what it was in previous years. So, demand there has been very low, and any activity will represent some upward pressure on demand. And finally, harvest season this year was good and helped to pull down inventories. This will continue in the near term. What will weigh on demand, however, is this. It now looks like winter may be relatively warm in the Northeast, where most of our heating oil demand comes from. And this will put downward pressure on heating oil demand. Now granted, only 5.3 million total U.S. households out of 129 million households still have heating oil as their primary heating source. And even that's down year over year by nearly 4%. Now jet, vestata, wasted. Demand is just so low. At one point, it was 30-something percent of its 2020 high, and now it's like half of typical demand. Jet will not recover anytime soon, maybe one, two years, never. If you look at the world flight numbers, I know a lot of people like to look at passenger statistics, but from an absolute number of commercial flights standpoint, in the world, we are running parallel to 2019 and are about 61% of where we were at this time last year. And it's not going to get any better, better for the balance of 2020. Like summer driving season here in the United States, uh, flights are affected by summer vacation season, but that spreads across the entire Northern Hemisphere. And this year was a flop. Jim, ask me about refining. <laughs> okay, tell us about refining. Jim took us through bankruptcies, mergers, and leverage. But looking at the near term, you've heard us speak before about energy transition and some reality around how petroleum will continue as part of the energy mix for decades to come. But with that, there's just too much refining capacity in the world relative to demand for refined products. The IEA recently stated in its World Energy Outlook 2020 that more than 6 million barrels per day of new capacity will come online by 2025 but demand will only grow by 2 million barrels per day. Supermajors recognize this, and U.S.-based refining companies see this. The consensus is that at present, 5 million barrels per day needs to be taken off the world market, and that 2.5 million barrels per day of that needs to come from North America. 
We're seeing this. PBF is turning its Paulsboro facility into a lubes refinery and feedstock generator for its Delaware City plant. It's looking at its California refineries for similar synergies. The company is also expecting Europe capacity to rationalize for domestic refining to better capture U.S. East Coast demand. The come-by-chance refinery remains closed. Kakasu is down and just submitted a warn notice. P66 has shuttered refineries and it's turning its San Francisco refinery into a biofuels plant. And I have to agree with P66 management here. We'll see more in the way of cleaner fuels over electrification of the car fleet, especially when states like California are leading that particular charge. California doesn't have the electricity to meet base load, so will not be able to sustain added stress on its electricity infrastructure. Refining margins have improved some since the height of COVID, but factoring in operating costs, refineries are still struggling. It's also been a problem as the lack of crude quality differentials since this epidemic started. This will likely clear as Canadian mandated curtailments expire and OPEC returns barrels to market, but it will be the strongest refiners in the group that will reap the most benefit post-recovery. I'll cut it there. Could go on about renewables, talk about gasoline peaking in the U.S. We'll save that for another day. Jim, what do we have for next time? As you have heard from Corey and me, the U.S. has a lot to lose in the energy space. We have a lot to lose because we have developed a lot. No president since 1973 has wanted to increase the U.S. balance of payments. Limiting fracking and shale production will increase the need to import foreign oil. That, my friends, will be the burden of the next two or three presidents. Next week, Corey and I will turn our gaze toward the impact of the second wave of Rona. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Have a great week.